This is an ABC podcast. Good morning and welcome to AM. I'm Kim Landers, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. More grim statistics are emerging about Australia's problem-plagued aged care sector, with nearly 40,000 serious incidents reported in the last financial year. A Productivity Commission report has revealed most of the reports to the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission were related to the unreasonable use of force. Stephanie Smale reports. The tens of thousands of reports of serious incidents noted in the Productivity Commission's report all came from residential aged care services subsidised by the federal government. This is heartbreaking. I mean, each complaint is a serious incident. So a family is distressed, a resident is distressed. That's aged care advocate Dr Sarah Russell from the group Aged Care Matters. The report notes the huge number of notifications doesn't necessarily mean that many older Australians were hurt, pointing out there could be multiple reports of the same issue, allegations or situations where something happened but no one was injured. But Dr Russell says that doesn't mean the figures are any less alarming. My question to the government is how are these incidents being resolved? That's the most important thing. It's just not the fact that there's been an incident, it's how is it resolved? I know some families who are making several reports to the serious incident because the complaint has not been resolved. It indicates to me that there is a real issue with staffing because these incidents happen in aged care homes where there are not enough staff on duty. The staffing crisis in aged care is getting worse. The Productivity Commission's report has also revealed, despite the federal government spending $4.9 billion on rent assistance, more than 40% of the people who receive it are in rental stress. That means people are spending more than 30% of their income on rent. Mayor Zizi from the social justice group Anglicare says the payments should be increased. So what that tells us is that our biggest housing program numerically, this this costs about three times as much as social housing and, and homelessness services, is still keeping people in rental stress. So we need to fix that payment so it actually pulls people out of rental stress. Has that been on the table at all? Is the federal government considering it? Unfortunately not. We haven't heard any indication from them that they're thinking about fixing up rent assistance. We hope they do. It is really important if they're going to spend this money that it's a payment that actually works. Mayor Zizi points out there's also many Australians missing out on the payments altogether, saying two out of three people on JobSeeker and nine out of ten people on Youth Allowance aren't eligible. She says the whole system needs an overhaul. We're hearing about people who are, you know, couch surfing for months at a time because they can't find a place to live. There are people who can't enter lease agreements because they can't show that they've got enough income. Uh, There are people who who just end up living in tents, sleeping in their cars uh, for months at a time. Mayor Zizi from Anglicare ending that report by Stephanie Smale. This Thursday, thousands are expected to participate in demonstrations and rallies critical of Australia Day. comes as the nation heads to a referendum later this year on enshrining an Indigenous voice to Parliament in the Constitution. And while advocates of the Yes campaign will be prominent, as Oliver Gordon reports, there'll also be speakers encouraging protesters to think twice before supporting the change. Protests on the Australia Day public holiday always have the potential to be highly charged. 
but just months out from a referendum on a voice to parliament, this year's feel particularly significant, and some prominent protesters like Indigenous actor and activist Natasha Wanganin will not be marching in support of the Yes campaign. We need treaties to have power on our own land. The Rabbit Proof Fence actor is organising and emceeing the Survival Day March event in Adelaide. She won't be using her platform to encourage the Crown to vote yes at this year's referendum. Think before you vote, understand what you're voting for and don't put my people at risk anymore. So it sounds like what you're saying is you'll be telling them not to support the voice. Well, no, I'll be telling them to support the right thing and whatever that may be in their lives, whatever that may be, support that, but mainly support what's going to help Aboriginal people. And in my head, that's a treaty before the voice. Meanwhile, in Melbourne, Green Senator Lydia Thorpe will run a similar line. She argues that treaty and land rights should take priority over a voice to parliament and will send that message when she speaks to the thousands expected to attend a Melbourne rally. For Indigenous academic Professor Marcia Langton, one of the key architects of the Voice to Parliament model, the fact that some of this year's rallies may be dominated by that argument is disappointing. Well, obviously I'm concerned about it. Professor Langton believes Indigenous people speaking against the idea of a Voice to Parliament represent a small fringe, not the mainstream. Far-left radicals who will never be satisfied with anything. Months out from a referendum, there's limited polling on how much support the idea of a voice to parliament has in the electorate. Marcia Langton hopes those attending anti-Australia Day marches don't change their views based on some of the speakers. All of those people who support reconciliation and uh, closing the gap will naively go along to these rallies, and they're now very large rallies, and believe that they're supporting reconciliation, whereas in fact they're fodder for the Black Greens, who are a divisive group even within the Greens party, to claim falsely uh, that these tens of thousands of people who are marching support their highly divisive, uh, disingenuous platform. In a statement provided to AM, Senator Lydia Thorpe has said treaty is the highest form of reconciliation and she'll continue that fight. Oliver Gordon reporting. No fresh food, alcohol or cigarettes. It's a grim situation in Western Australia's Kimberley region where locals say they're running out of patience. Three weeks since catastrophic floods cut off the highway, community leaders say they've never seen the mood so bleak in the town of Derby. Here's Erin Park from the National Regional Reporting Team. The floodwaters may have dropped, but the tensions are rising in the Kimberley town of Derby. I have no idea who's in control of this, but Australia, this big-ass country, has completely forgotten about the Kimberleys and about Derby and has kind of just left us on our own to figure it out for ourselves. Maita Sharon Ongui is one of several residents who've posted videos on social media calling for more assistance for the community. While the bulk of the damage was 200 kilometres east around the town of Fitzroy Crossing, Derby is bearing the brunt of the fallout. Road access remains cut off, supplies are dwindling and there's growing resentment about the extra pressure created by flood evacuees still staying in local motels. So you add a whole bunch, like something like 200 evacuees into a small town like this that's already struggling, it's going to cause a bit of mayhem. There is some immediate relief in sight, with dozens of pallets of food due to be unloaded in Derby today. 
But the WA government said it'll be another four weeks before a gravel track can be carved out to restore road access around wiped-out sections of the Great Northern Highway. Long-time resident and former Shire President Elsa Archer says she's never seen the mood so bleak. People are unhappy. You haven't been able to buy any smokes here. You can't get any alcohol. The food sometimes is there and then it's not, and then they wonder why people panic by it. And you can't go anywhere. I have never seen Derby so low. On Thursday, she watched from her front yard as around 50 people gathered at the local police station, protesting the extension of liquor restrictions that have shut bottle shops. People that were not alcoholics and not big drinkers, most of them are just ordinary people that want to be able to have a drink. The restrictions were put in place in the days after the evacuees arrived due to what WA police have described as a spike in alcohol-related violence. Most of the evacuees are from dry communities but are now staying just metres from the biggest pub in Derby with $2,000 emergency payments hitting bank accounts. Authorities say the restrictions have worked, with the bottle shop closures resulting in a significant decrease in alcohol-related offending. The Department of Fire and Emergency Services is coordinating the emergency flood response. Incident controller Leon Gardner has thanked residents for their patience as they triage resupplies to the affected towns. The key for us is to reassure people that we're doing everything we can in terms of the transportation of food, fuel and other essential goods. Now there's news that nobody wants to hear. A tropical cyclone is expected to form off WA's northern coast this weekend, bringing more rain and delaying the recovery for towns that are already tired. Erin Park reporting. California investigators are still scrambling to pin down why a 72-year-old gunman killed 11 people in a Los Angeles-area dance hall. The victims were aged between 50 and 80, and more details are now emerging about how the rampage in one of the largest Asian-American communities could have been worse. North America correspondent Carrington Clark is in Monterey Park. Well, what we do now know is that the gunman went to a second venue police say uh, and it was there that he was still armed but some of the patrons in that venue were actually able to take that weapon from him uh, before the gunman fled. So we've heard earlier from Brandon Say, he's from the Lai Lai Ballroom Studio which is that second venue and he earlier spoke to Good Morning America. When I got the courage I, I lunged at him with both my hands, grabbed the weapon and we had a struggle. He was hitting me across the face, bashing the back of my head. Finally, at one point, I was able to pull the gun away from him, shove him aside, create some distance, point the gun at him, intimidate him, shout at him and say, get the hell out of here. I'll shoot. Get away. Go. So, Carrington, as we learn more about how things unfolded, local residents in Monterey Park are still quite bewildered and shaken by this. What are they telling you? Yeah, I think the feeling is shell shock. We are still here outside the Star Ballroom. Some of the police tape has now been taken down so people can get closer to the Star Ballroom, although the venue itself is still obviously closed. People have started to lay flowers, put candles. We've seen a steady stream of people coming to pay their respects. And and what people are telling us is they're still just trying to comprehend how this can occur in a place that they all thought was relatively safe. One of those we spoke to was Arlene Alejandro, who says she's still trying to comprehend what happened. I've had, you know, um, my own encounter with racism, with hate towards me, and even being a woman. I get scared just going to the gas station, 
feeling like someone's going to attack me just because of my skin color, my mix, and this this is just too close to home for me. So, Carrington, this is the fifth mass shooting in the US this month, and once again, attention is turning to gun laws. We have heard from the LA County Sheriff, uh, Robert Luna, and he is those one of those who is ringing the bell to say that America must act in order to deal with the scourge of mass shootings. Gun violence needs to stop. There's too much of it. Uh, California has some of the strictest gun laws in the country, but yet look what we just had today. So let's look at across our nation, see what works and what doesn't. I could tell you this, the status quo is not working. And I hope that this tragedy doesn't just go on a long list of many others that we don't even talk about until the next one comes up. LA County Sheriff Robert Luna and before him, correspondent Carrington Clark in Monterey Park. There's an international push to hold Russia's President Vladimir Putin criminally responsible for the war in Ukraine. Kiev wants to see a special tribunal created to prosecute top leaders for the crime of aggression, something that hasn't happened since World War II. Governments, diplomats and legal experts are now debating how to get it started, as Bonnie Simons-Brown reports. For the past 11 months, investigators in Ukraine have been gathering evidence of grave human rights violations. It is difficult to listen to the stories of people at some points when they really describe horrific events. They describe killings, they describe torture, they describe the suffering that they have been through. Matilda Bogner is the head of the UN's human rights monitoring mission in Ukraine. Her team has recorded the deaths of more than 7,000 civilians since the war started including more than 400 children. We're documenting willful killings, summary executions of both civilians and of prisoners of war. We're documenting enforced disappearances, arbitrary detention. We're documenting things such as torture and ill-treatment. The reports provide a real-time record of the human rights situation in Ukraine, which Matilda Bogner says is essential for accountability. Whether that's criminal accountability or even the level of just having the world know that this is what's happening is also, I see, as a form of accountability. More than 50,000 reports of war crimes have been registered with Ukrainian authorities and domestic trials of Russian soldiers have begun. Now, momentum is building to go after Russian President Vladimir Putin for what legal experts call the supreme international crime of aggression. Former US Ambassador-at-Large for War Crimes Issues David Sheffer points out there's one immediate problem. The International Criminal Court does not have jurisdiction over the crime of aggression with respect to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It would be untenable that the crime of aggression would not be seriously investigated and prosecuted by some tribunal, but you have to build it for this circumstance. David Sheffer believes the UN General Assembly can drive the process if a majority of its 193 member states recommend a tribunal be formed. The General Assembly would not be able to compel member states to cooperate with it, but that's to be expected that some states, particularly Russia, would not cooperate with it, but that would not prevent ultimately indictments being handed down. Veteran war crimes prosecutor Reed Brody has sought justice for the victims of dictators in Chile, Haiti, Chad and the 
the Gambia. He says even if Vladimir Putin remains physically out of reach, there's value in pursuing him. Even if Putin is not arrested today, an indictment against him for war crimes or for aggression, crimes which have no statute of limitations, will hang over his head forever. Moscow denies accusations of war crimes. It continues to call its actions in Ukraine a special military operation. Reid Brody says while he supports the idea of a special tribunal, he wants to see other future cases of aggression prosecuted as well. There's already this perception, particularly in the global south, that all these wonderful tools of international justice only kick in against enemies of the West. There needs to be a commitment to prosecute all acts of aggression. That's veteran war crimes. Times prosecutor Reid Brody speaking with our reporter Bonnie Simons Brown. Queensland has long been dubbed the skin cancer capital of the world, recording 40% more melanomas than the national average. And now a new report has found half of the state's residents are getting sunburnt every year. It sparked a call for Queensland to develop a skin cancer prevention strategy for the first time and set targets for reducing cancer rates, as Annie Guest reports. Carcinogenic ultraviolet rays can shine as early as 8.30 in Queensland, but Professor Monica Yanda from the University of Queensland says sun protection remains poor. We found that um, over the last year, nearly half of all uh, Queenslanders report that they are still being sunburned. Um, And we also found um, that less than 60% of adults and 80% of children apply sunscreen when outdoors in summer. A report by Skin Cancer Prevention Queensland has found those getting burnt the most are outdoor workers, people playing sport and adolescents. 3,600 Queenslanders are diagnosed with skin cancer each year, with melanoma the biggest cause of cancer deaths among young adults. So the report recommends government targets. So the targets are that we want to reduce the incidence of skin cancer by 2030 by 5% and we want to have a 25% reduction by 2050. 100 times more money is spent on treating than preventing skin cancer. But the Queensland government is seeking to change that, putting aside $8 million for prevention in its last budget. Report co-author Professor Yander says priorities must include normalising daily sunscreen and broad-brimmed hat-wearing. A really big public health campaign and, and messages in all kinds of media, I guess really reaching the different target groups. So, for example, the young people, we want to co-design the messages with them so that they really resonate. The report recommends greater monitoring of workplace compliance with sun safety requirements and shade audits at schools and sports grounds. To consider moving uh, sport events to hours of the day that that has less sun exposure. Sunscreen at sports events is also recommended, something Peter Comiskey from Peak Group Q Sport says isn't new. Well, the short answer is there's always more that can be done. Um, Sports have had the message and the need for adequate protection whilst playing and training for those participating in their sports from the harmful rays of the sun for decades. He says community sports are reminded to consider scheduling and uniforms, but they can't force people to be sun safe. We have significant turnover of uh, those that are responsible for the delivery of sport. It is largely a volunteer-run delivery system. 
The report had broad collaboration from skin cancer experts, government officials and cancer advocacy groups. Any guest reporting. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. After three years of doggedly sticking to a COVID zero policy, last month China made a sudden and unexpected U-turn. Today, what we do and don't know about the biggest COVID outbreak the world has seen so far. Keep listening to hear ABC News Daily. Find the podcast on the ABC Listener. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.